As we begin to turn our attention uh, to Luke, this morning we're, we're looking at the crucifixion of Christ, which again, the fact that it's about a week away from Christ's victorious entry into the city of Jerusalem is uh, just historically shocking. How so much, how you could come in on the Sunday of one week and people yelling, uh, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of this anticipation and vibe and sense of victory and achievement. And that would translate within a week into confusion and then from confusion to challenge and from challenge to cursing and from cursing, betrayal and betrayal to conviction. Uh, actually, I mean, if you thought of it as a week, that's being done by Thursday. Uh, just a lot would happen. It, it means that almost everybody who thought they knew Jesus didn't really understand. That, that speaks to just an entire community being mistaken about something. For the weather to shift like that among the people. And, you know, we can be mistaken about things. We're mistaken all the times about things. And some things, it doesn't, some things it doesn't matter if we're mistaken about them. They're small things. Some things it matters. This past week, I was... Two things happened this past week. One, I was... Uh, this isn't that funny. It's just a mistake. I ordered... I was having breakfast with somebody. I said, yeah, I'll have a breakfast sandwich. I thought I said on bagel. I guess I didn't. It showed up on toast. Big whoop. That's a mistake. Who cares? Right? I had another meeting this week. It was early in the morning. I was 10 minutes down the road going, why are my feet so comfy? And I realized I was still wearing my slippers. <laughs> now, that mistake had a little bit more of a consequence because uh, I was going to Main Street and you got to look cool by college students. But so I'd turn around and go home and get real shoes. But still, like... I mean, what are, the, what are the implications of those mistakes? I'm getting older. <laughs> some mistakes have real implication. So there's some things in this world you can be wrong about. Who cares? You can choose to be wrong about because it's just you like being you and it's your own idiosyncrasy and you like being stubborn there. That's fine in some areas. Some areas you have to get it right because the implications are literally grave grave implications to being wrong. And this morning, we're going to look at all sorts of crowds of people and groups of people and perspectives on Jesus that are not quite right. And I want us just to think about the, uh, the implications because you know how it is when you read the stories. Uh, I mean, if all the stories in the Bible that we know, we probably know this one or think we know this one the best. And there's times in your life where you feel like you're Peter, right? You would have denied Christ. And then there's times in your life you feel like you're Judas or John or Mary or Martha, right? There's times in your life you feel like I literally would have driven the nail into that man. And so this morning, I, the quote was not to say, which one are you? Because chances are we're, we're seasonal in our reflections and we're, part of us has been part of them in all sorts of ways. Uh, the goal this morning is to appreciate the implications of being right about him and of being wrong about him. 
So let's look. Luke 23, I'm going to pick up in the 26th verse. Jesus has gone to see Pilate. Pilate has said, he's innocent. I got nothing on this guy. Gives him back to the priest, and the priest gives him back to him and go, why don't you check again? Pilate finds out that actually Jesus is from Nazareth, which is technically outside of his jurisdiction, or at least he's trying to slough it off on jurisdictional grounds, so he sends him to Herod. Herod says, oh, I've been wanting to meet Jesus. Listens to him for a while, goes, ah, there's nothing wrong, but Jesus didn't say anything to him, so he doesn't, turns out he doesn't like Jesus, mocks him, gives him back to Pilate and says, do whatever you want with him. Gets back to Pilate, Pilate says, this is all the 23rd chapter before we pick up. Pilate interrogates him once again, comes to the final conclusion, this man is innocent of all wrongdoing. Luke is very careful. Luke's description of the passion has the innocence of Christ kind of as a front theme. Pilate says this man is absolutely innocent. There's implications in that. The people protest, and Pilate, I suppose, out of concern for peace of the city, puts an innocent man to death. And we pick up in the 26th verse as Christ is being led away. Let me read 26 to 31. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? This first crowd has a multitude of people, and then it says, and then there's women. Okay, and there's, there's, it's actually two different groups. Okay, so the way it's being given to us here in the text, there's, there's two different groups. There's the multitude, which in verse 48, by the way, Luke will describe as a crowd that assembled to watch the spectacle. Okay, so that's the crowd. Is a crowd of curiosity that wants to see something, whether it's, is he going to do something? Or whether it's, hey, it's a crucifixion. Something to do today. People have always gathered at executions. So why exactly? I don't know why each person in the crowd is there, but the crowd has more of a spectator label over them. But in addition to the crowd following Jesus as he's being led out to the place of the skull is a group of women who, are it says, are mourning and lamenting. And Jesus turns to them and says this, kind of apocalyptic, kind of troubling thing. So he's not, Jesus is not turning to the crowd. It says, and he turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem. He's turning to the women who are there. And his response to them, first of all, you'd think, if anybody's doing the right thing in this story that we're going to read, they're doing the right thing. I mean, they're mourning and lamenting the death of Jesus. 
But Jesus turns to them and says, ladies, don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves and for the city. I, I, these are moments, I, every time I try to imagine it, I get it wrong. Because, I mean, just a, you imagine you're on the street, you're following Jesus out, and he's beaten and bruised and whipped and bleeding. And I mean, he must be, there's, there's a few details that are kind of circumstantial evidence. The fact that they would give the cross beam to Simon of Cyrene. The rule of thumb, the tradition of the Romans was you bear your own cross to your execution. It's a way of carrying your guilt to your death. So the fact that the weight of Jesus' guilt was for a moment put on Simon, that makes many scholars think Jesus must have been in such a poor physical state by this point that the the soldiers thought he will expire before we even get to the crucifixion. I mean, he dies well before the others do. So you have, in my, again, in my mind, I'm thinking here is Christ who most likely is in very severe physical condition, struggling, and there's people mourning, and at some point, does he stop and turn and say, say this? I mean, for one, when does the ministry of Christ end? The fact that he is still teaching is amazing to me that he still has their will, their good in mind. It's pretty surprising to me. But what is also surprising is what he says. I mean, it's a little bit of a troubling way to, to start. I mean, he pushes on them. Don't weep for me. What he's saying is, is you are mistaken in your grief. That's what he says. Your grief is misplaced. Not that what's not happening isn't sad. I'm sure it's sad. I'm sure it's worthy of grief. But he's, what he's saying is, is, if you understood the implications of what's happening, your grief would be placed somewhere else to a greater degree of severity. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you could appreciate the consequences of the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem rejecting me as Lord and Savior, you would fixate your grief on them for what's going to happen to them. It's very much like Jesus spoke when he came into the city on Palm Sunday. So earlier that week, he's on his way into the city. This is the 19th chapter of Luke. And he says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem is going to be, it's going to be a historic metaphor. Jerusalem is going to serve to demonstrate what happens, what will happen to people when they reject the Christ. And so Jesus is apocalyptic language. It's almost certainly pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is not far off. Not long after his death, Jerusalem is destroyed. But Jerusalem is destroyed 
And Christ is connecting it, saying, this is what happens at my rejection. The implications of my rejection are destruction and judgment. And it's just to to suggest to the women, if you appreciated who I really was, the gravity of this moment would cause you to grieve the city. There's a troubling phrase, verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, a lot of people have opinions and nobody really knows. My sense is, Jerusalem is rejecting Christ when he's among them. Like he, the city and the people, the sons of Abraham are rejecting the promise when he in flesh and blood is among them. How are they distribute? How will they be when he's gone? I give you this this thought. When, when this week arrives, I sometimes kind of go through a "how should I feel" experience, like. You know, how do I feel a good Friday? You, you, you almost want to get emotional? You want to be sad? I'm, I'm trying to say it in a way that I think we several... As though if I'm sad about the death of Christ, I'm worshiping him better. And there's, like, I think that's... I'm not criticizing that... It, Except to this, the goal of this story is not to usher us into the grief of the cross. It's to usher us into the implications of the cross. What does it mean? Jesus is saying to them, your grief is misplaced because you don't know what this really means. And if you did, you would weep over those who are rejecting me. And then others show up. Let me read 32 through 39. I'll read through 39. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now let me stop there real quick. This phrase in 34, we'll talk about it quite a bit. I think, what, I think the way Luke arranged it is he puts the statement of Christ in 34 and then 35 through 39, he kind of lists the they know not what we do crowd. They know not what they do crowd. So 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Let's just stop there for a second. All of those groups of people are mistaken about Jesus. All of those groups of people have something in their mind that's not right about the moment. And to them, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I don't think this should not be an overly deep theological 
This is not an overly deep theological statement. I don't think the intent of, of the, the Lord is that we would assume that Christ is giving them absolution of all sin and that all of these people are going to go to heaven. That's not the intent. I think the intent here is narrow. It's a narrow statement. In other words, Lord, do not hold their sinful behavior that you now see against them. Stephen says something very much like this when he's being stoned. It's with the heart of the very person who's throwing the stone at me may one day grow to, re- to regret what he did. And when that happens, may he remember that he's forgiven. That's the spirit. That like us, who have in various times in our life felt like, ah, I was kind of like that. I've scoffed, I've mocked, I've stood idly by and watched, I've, I've been Peter. Right? It's important that Jesus Christ redeemed and restored Peter. For us, it's important. This is one of these moments. Christ is, Christ is saying out of his mouth, Jesus doesn't need to say, Father, forgive them. Why is Jesus on the cross? If not for their forgiveness. Jesus is saying it. So that maybe in, uh, for a few reasons, but I think one is so that maybe in their hearing when one day at Pentecost, maybe 50 days from now, right? When at Pentecost and they realize we were the ones, that's Peter's message at Pentecost, you did this. And when they realize that, they might still find forgiveness and hope. I think that's what the Lord's doing. I think for the church, the statement of Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is helpful because this, this scene, this moment, I mean, this is the climax of human history right here. This moment is, can be seen as the, maybe the darkest category of sin. I mean, the abject rejection of the Son of God to the point of reveling in his death. People will say to me, I don't know, I've done a lot of bad things. I don't know if God could forgive me. And I think, I have a category that's way worse where Jesus stamps it with grace. It serves as a bookend for the church to say there really is nothing that you can do that is beyond the grace of Christ. And then we get the list. We get the crowd who watches How are they mistaken? I think they're mistaken in the fact that they're embracing this moment as an interesting historical event that where in which they have no responsibility other than to observe it and maybe believe it happened. This is the people who are intellectually assenting to, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Maybe not much more than that. The crucifixion of Christ is far more significant than simply the historical fact that it happened. The church of Jesus Christ does not boast about the death and resurrection of Christ because we have a hobby of history. We want to talk about a historical point. There's implications. And you have here people who are, they know what's happened. They're paying attention to what happened, but it doesn't appear as though they they have any sense of responsibility to respond to what's happening. This time of year, I, this is always for me, like maybe it's as a pastor, I don't know. It's always like this bittersweet moment because I see things 
This is when Discovery Channel does a big thing about Jesus, fact or fiction. And then History Channel's gonna do something, killing Jesus, and, and CNN's gonna do something, the real man behind the myth. You know, and I just grit my teeth. For one, I feel like it's networks profiting off of his clothing. And so I don't, I, I don't wanna have any part with it. That they're selling commercials on the shoulders of my Christ. That's the first way I feel about it. The second way I feel, but then I go, you know, but there's somebody who might find Jesus in it. So then I feel, you know, Ooh, how am I supposed to feel? The thing, though, is none of these programs drive anybody towards the, the, the grasping the implications of his death. They treat it as a historical curiosity. Did he die? Didn't he die? How did he die? What's the data? That's these people. That's us. In the way, if you want to imagine, how, how is this? How are we sometimes, how do we timeshare here? When we who know the message of God sit idly by, when his gospel is of great implication to everyone, Maybe in the most perverse sense, when a person calls himself a Christian because they intellectually assent to the history. Then you have the rulers, right? The people watch, the rulers scoff. The rulers use, this is why we call this, this, this Sunday, let him come down. The rulers use his position on the cross almost as a case in point that he's not the Christ. So the irony is, there is no greater irony in all of storytelling. The, the rulers, so if you look at the rulers, they're actually speaking to the crowd. I imagine their back is to the cross and they're kind of doing this. You call this the Christ? Look at him. He saved him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself if he's the Holy One of God? They're kind of pointing back over their shoulders, but their language is He. It's very different. The mocking of the, of the soldiers, they don't know all that religious stuff. The mocking is, is you. They're just looking at him going, you're weak. But the priests and the leaders, they are totally misinterpreting what the Messiah ought to be, is going to be. <clears throat> they've decided what a Savior is, and they've decided that's not it. So they're parading it. They're looking at Christ who is displaying strength by remaining on the cross and using that to say he's not the Savior. I think for us, how do we, how do we behave like priests? Well, I hope we don't behave like priests, like these priests. But I do think there's times when you and I have to decide subtly the kind of savior that Jesus has to be for us. Here's what you have to do. Or maybe we're fixated not on the real issue in our life, like we want a savior, but we don't want a savior for the real issue in our life, which is sinfulness. We want a savior for the non-issues in our life, which are important to us. 
There's a common question. It's kind of the common heavy-hitting atheist question or agnostic question that I really feel is, has no power if the right things are in the right order. But the question is, is, if God is so good, why is evil in the world? That question only sounds good if you refuse to admit that humanity is the problem. Otherwise, it's an easy question. The priests, the priests are like this. The priests, they refuse to acknowledge the problem. And so Jesus is totally unsatisfactory to them. They would much rather deal with smaller problems, make the smaller problems the problem. Now, do we do that? I think we do that with the Lord. Lord, would you please ignore the sin, the deep root sin issues in my life and just make me not do that thing anymore? Would you just fix my marriage? Just fix it. What's the problem? The soldiers mock. The soldiers stand to me as not not so much, they stand to me as the non-religious kind of pagan perspective of Jesus, which is looks weak, looks powerless, must not be true. Not worthy. What worthy thing would die on a cross? That's the attitude. Now, in the church, having heard the story repeated for 40 years in my life, and, you know, I see strength in Christ. Like, I know that Colossians, it says he climbed up on the cross. He climbed up on it. For me, Christ is a strong man. I still know that Monday through Friday, in our offices, the religion of the pagan is at work. It's a different definition of strength, different definition of power, different definition of honor, different definition of, of worthy. Which means maybe for Christians, I'm just saying, for us in the room who profess Christ and try to follow him, it may not be that we look at Christ on the cross and say weak. We may see strong. However, in your life, you might not be willing to do the very strong thing that looks weak. I mean, you may be allergic to it in your own life. The crowd watches the priests scoff, the soldiers mock. And then there's one of the criminals, right? The criminal rails, it says in 39. He railed at him. Are you not the Christ? Crying out loud. If you were the Christ, you'd save yourself. And me, by the way. Save me too. This is, this fixation, this, how is this mistaken? This is the classic mistaking of if Jesus Christ was really good, he would save me from my circumstances right now. That God is a circumstantial God that just wants us to feel right. There's just no possible way that the savior of the universe would sit on the cross, not only himself enduring that kind of harm, but that he would let me endure that kind of harm. Nearly every apostle was martyred. God is concerned about the implications of his death and resurrection, and that the world would know that. Not simply our comfort. Now, those are, again, 
I'm sure there's more different ways. There's other ways that we could look at the cross. I just, these are the ones that Luke puts in front of us, these, these crowds. And I know that there's parts of us that are sometimes some of these, maybe parts that are sometimes all of these. Hopefully not parts that are always any of these. But at last in 40, we get someone who gets it, which is he's the least character in pretty much the whole story. It's the other criminal. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, he's saying, don't you fear God? Because you are at the hour of your death. This would be the right time to fear God. 41, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due rewards for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I am sure this criminal is not a theologian. And I am sure this criminal doesn't know everything about Jesus. And if he was quizzed, we would all beat him in a quiz on verses in the Bible. He has the right things in the right order, which is this. Jesus is innocent. And the kingdom is his Do you notice what he said? He didn't say, remember me when you get to heaven. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he knows this man is innocent and this man is not like me. He's divine in some way. I'm not attesting that this criminal on the cross has, can plumb the depths of that idea. I'm just saying all he knows is he's innocent He's of God, and the third thing is, is I am guilty. He's innocent. Me, I deserve what I'm getting. Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like in all of this narrative, man, that is right on. Verse 44. There's a, I don't know if this is Luke. Something happens. In 44 and 45, we're going to read about how for three hours, from noon to 3 p.m., Jesus hung on the cross. Things happened. The sun darkened out. Uh, The other gospels talk about other things that happened that might have struck in fear or introspection into the crowd. Either way, for three hours, this crowd of priests and soldiers and, and women and, and mob, they, they're watching Jesus die for three hours, saying some of these things. Watch what happens. It was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't have much time, but I do think what's interesting to me in the crucifixion stories is, is the only thing not worshiping Christ at his death is humanity. I mean, the Palm Sunday says the rocks will cry out. I mean, the sun bows, the curtain splits. It's like the earth is worshiping and man isn't. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now listen. Now when the centurion 
saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Other gospels have him saying, certainly this man was the son of God. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, with the exception of the priests, with the exception of the priests, at least for now, it's interesting that Luke recounts the reaction of somebody already mentioned in the earlier party. So the crowd was, the crowd that was watching, the crowd that came to see the spectacle, right? Their earlier demeaning of let's go see if something neat happens or let's go watch a man die, whatever that was. The crowd that came out for one reason, after they observed Christ, they walked away different. Beating their breasts, that's a sign of grief and mourning during the time. So they came wanting one thing, and they left having received another. The centurion, who's representative, I think likely representative of of the mocking soldiers, at least, I think Luke's matching them to say the soldiers mocked, but in the end, at the end of the day, the, the head soldier, the centurion, the lead officer of the crowd is saying this man was innocent. He's the son of God and he worshiped God, it says. Even the women that earlier Christ speaks to, and I don't, they are seen as their grief has matured. I, I, don't, I can't fully explain it, except that they're standing far off, taking it all in. In all of the accounts, the death of Christ, the implications of the death of Christ are more than when they came. And I suppose that would be the question maybe the question to leave with, the question for this week as you, as you think on the crucifixion, on Christ's death, on the payment, on his resurrection, on all of these things, I would ask that maybe your endeavor would not be just to feel a certain way or to get to a place of cathartic grief about Christ, but rather you would meditate on what are the implications? What, and I know your mind, for many of you, you know the answer. Maybe it's best to meditate and sit. Take, take the three hours. Take from the sixth hour to the ninth hour one day. Or one, if you don't have time, then take the first hour to the third hour that day. Read the word. Give it an offering to the Lord and meditate. But how is, what are the implications of his life in my life right now? Like, do I observe the death of Christ and yet not grieve for the city in which God's placed me? Am I right now living kind of in a season where I'm a passive onlooker to the things of God? Are there ways in my deep spirit that I scoff or mock or am frustrated and rail against the kind of God that I've been given? My discontent with the God I've been given. And I would invite you this week not to... We're not chasing after a feeling. We want to be different. 
That's what we need. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come up, and, and um, we'll close with a song. It's a good time to reflect and approach the Spirit. Let's pray, Lord. You're on our side. You're for us. You were given to us, sent. Your gift for us. The Spirit working in us. And I, Lord, I pray. Ah, Lord, none of us are perfect. And all of us are, are filtering and our understanding of what you've done based upon the things we've experienced. Lord, I just ask you would, you'd bring some holy objectivity, Lord, if we sometimes need a word from the outside to say, you are doing this the wrong way, Lord. I pray that we would be hearts that welcome that. Welcome your conviction for our good because we know, we know there's forgiveness. We know there's grace. Lord, we agree, lay the groundwork of this week with the, with the knowledge that you are innocent, that you are divine, and that we are guilty. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.